This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. This is the Science Podcast for June 30th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, scientists are learning how to cryopreserve tissues from donor kidneys to coral larvae. Contributing correspondent Warren Cornwall joins me to talk about the latest in freezing and thawing technology. Next up, how much does a robot need to know about the world to navigate it? Researcher Theophile Gervais discusses a scavenger hunt style experiment that faces off different versions of robot navigation, trying to find things in Airbnbs. Finally, as part of our series of books on sex, gender, and science, host Angela Saini interviews author Dorothy Roberts about her book, Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty. A few weeks ago, we had a story on here about organ transplant technology that focused on keeping organs going inside the body after the declaration of death. So many willing donors' organs are not usable because of time constraints on the transplant process. We're talking, you know, hours to get a match, get them into surgery. It's a huge, complicated rush to transplant organs. Another tack that researchers have been taking to increase the availability of organs for transplant is looking into freezing them and storing them for later. This Week in Science, contributing correspondent Warren Cornwall wrote about some encouraging work being done on organ freezing and thawing. Hi, Warren. Hi, Sarah. This sounds like a good idea. Whenever an eligible donor dies, freezing down their kidney, liver, heart, save it for the right person. What are some of the other things that we could do if we had a really solid pun, freezing and thawing technology? So among the things that scientists are working on right now is using sort of deeply cold temperatures to preserve endangered corals, to preserve 
little specks of 3D printed human tissue on sort of slides that can be used for testing pharmaceuticals, even produce that might be shipped long distances and then show up at the grocery store looking effectively fresh because of the way it's been conserved. Right. Yeah. So basically warehousing every kind of living thing. So for species preservation, for research, for organ transplantation, if we crack how to freeze things deeply and preserve them well, and then thaw them back out, there's just a lot of opportunities for research, but also for, you know, day-to-day life stuff. And for, for industries. Yeah. You mentioned in the story that human embryos are actually commonly frozen and thawed for later use. This is something that we've kind of got down to a science, but larger things like livers or kidneys are so much more difficult. What's the big problem with freezing something that, you know, is bigger than a couple cells? The big problem with preserving any of these things at super low temperatures is ice. Yeah. And this is where we talk about whether it's freezing or something else. Yeah, that's right. I use the words freezing and thawing. We use it in the story because uh, that's the normal terminology that people would use for making something super cold so that it's solid and then warming it back up again. But, but cryobiologists, a number of them cringe when I use those terms because they say that those terms apply specifically to ice, to the formation of sort of liquid crystals. Right. And when they're doing their work, their major goal is to get these things really cold without creating crystals. Mm-hmm. So those crystals are kind of the rub here. So if you make a crystal inside of a cell, it, the cell is not going to be happy. Yeah, there's details about why it wouldn't be happy, but yeah, wouldn't be happy. How do you prevent water that's very, very cold? We're talking minus 130 C. How do you take water that cold and have it not be crystal? There's a couple of different tools here. One is when you're dealing with the tissue, you pump it full of what's basically antifreeze. We put antifreeze in our car radiators to keep the liquid from freezing at sub-zero temperatures. It makes the fluid more viscous, and so it's harder for it to sort of snap into a lattice formation. And the other thing is that it dilutes the water so that you have a lot of molecules that aren't water that are breaking it up, and so that it's harder to form these crystals. As a consequence, what they've figured out is that if you cool something fast enough with enough of this antifreeze, you can get it to enter a state that is effectively like a liquid solid. Is it vitreous? Is that what it's yeah, called? That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's vitrified. Yeah. yeah. And so we want to vitrify organs. Mm-hmm. We don't want to freeze organs. Just circling back to our semantics here. Yes, that's one strategy. And then there are scientists also in this field who have decided, look, vitrification is useful in some circumstances, but it's also technically really hard. And we think that we can get a lot of benefits from not getting that cold, but figuring out ways to push things below zero, below freezing, and that'll slow down biological processes. It won't lock them in the way vitrification would, but it's going to get us a lot of advantages. So for example, you could extend the life of an organ when it's transiting from a donor to a recipient, you could double or triple the time. That's not forever, but it might still get you a lot of benefits. How far has this vitrification process come? You know, Have they been able to do something that's pretty sizable? There's a team at the University of Minnesota. They're considered some of the leaders in the field, and they recently announced that they have successfully vitrified, rewarmed, and then transplanted rat kidneys. 
So a rat kidney is, I don't know, about the size of a thumbnail. It has some complexity to it. It has like inside and outside and different cell types and, and all that stuff, right? Oh, it does. And, it, you know, it's much bigger than a human embryo, which is the size of a grain of salt, right? And so it is bigger and it is more complicated. They have now moved on to working with pig kidneys, which are much closer to the size of a human kidney. You know, they wouldn't talk to me about the results that they're seeing with it, but they seem confident that the strategy that worked with rats can work with bigger things. Very cool. So what are some of the issues with vitrification besides having to go so low down in temperature? There's a couple of barriers. One is the cryoprotectants are toxic. The more cryoprotectant, the less ice. But as you, you know, raise the amount too high, it starts to become overly toxic. Another problem with getting things down is that you need to make sure that you are cooling the entire organ quickly enough or the entire object quickly enough that everything's going to vitrify. Because if you freeze something slowly, you start to change the concentration of things, right? As some things solidify, particularly if you start to wind up with ice crystals, then concentration of things like salts skyrockets in the remaining liquid. And also, if you have things that you're trying to push down to vitrification, if they don't cool fast enough, you start to get ice to nucleate. So the researchers that are looking to keep things at a more moderate cold, what are they doing differently than the, the vitrification people? There's a group at Harvard and Massachusetts General Hospital who are doing interesting work where they are trying to sort of take lessons from natural organisms that out in nature have figured out through evolution how to survive in extreme conditions. Yeah, this is very cool because there are all kinds of cells that do freeze naturally. They're just not human ones. There's a number of, of critters that do it, but the most famous example is the wood frog, uh, Rana sylvatica, that lives in North America, you know, all the way north of the Arctic Circle and can survive with as much as two thirds of its body frozen wow. for months <laughs> uh, and then emerge seemingly completely unharmed. So what do we know about the mechanisms that they use to stay OK through that process? Their liver pumps a lot of glucose into the body as things start getting cold. And that glucose acts like a natural cryoprotectant. Another thing that they do is that their body puts out chemicals that make ice preferentially form in its vasculature, in its blood vessels. Those vessels can better accommodate ice with less damage. And because it's concentrated there, it doesn't form as readily in other places. They also produce particular antioxidants that can reduce the damage that can happen when cells go through dramatic fluctuations in oxygen levels. And then there's a whole other raft of things that they do, and, and people are still studying these frogs to figure out everything that they're doing. But, but those are some of the strategies. And so the folks at Harvard and Mass General, for example, have figured out that you can use a sort of tweaked version of glucose that does not get metabolized, but still can act as a cryoprotectant. One thing that, you know, I kind of emphasized in my intro is that there is cooling and then there's thawing or warming up, which is kind of the mirror image problem. You have to make sure that you don't disrupt the tissue or the cells when you're coming back up to the right temperature. So what are some of the, the big issues with thawing out tissues or organs? 
that's where the University of Minnesota folks have focused a lot of their energy. One of the things that they told me is, listen, we've been able to vitrify things for decades. It's the rewarming that's the crux. There's a couple of challenges of rewarming, particularly when you get down to these ultra cold sort of liquid nitrogen temperatures, which is what they're doing for vitrification. One of them is as the temperature starts to rise, the system passes through a phase where ice can form again. Mm -hmm. As it approaches the sort of freezing barrier, warming quickly to just sort of zip through that phase as fast as you can is one thing. And then another problem is think about an ice cube that you drop into a glass of water. What happens? Different parts of the ice cube are changing temperature and expanding and contracting. And so they crack. That same thing can happen with just about any object that you start to warm up. That's the other problem is they need to figure out how to get these objects to warm up evenly throughout. It's amazing how difficult this problem is from both sides. So what are some of the approaches that these teams are taking to figure out the thawing problem? The University of Minnesota folks are certainly, I I would say, kind of at the forefront of the warming question. And they have deployed a number of different tools. If we're talking about small things, they're doing work with fruit fly larvae, for example, and they're collaborating with a scientist who's working to preserve coral larvae. The folks at the University of Minnesota have developed a fine metal mesh that transmits temperature very effectively. I watched someone do this. They put a batch of fruit fly larvae on a little, kind of like a a spoon or a ladle, and they dip it in liquid nitrogen and pull it back out. Zam, it's, it's flash frozen, right? And then they take it and they dip it in another liquid and and they time how long it's down there, and zam, it, it warms back up, right? Yeah. For those little tiny things, that seems to be working pretty well. But for something like a rat kidney, that approach would not work. It's a much more complicated and ornate process. And the one that they've settled on is that as they infuse the rat kidney with cryoprotectant, they are also including nanoparticles of iron oxide that turns the entire solution this black. Then they vitrify it, and when they are going to warm it back up, they take it over to this machine, they push a button, and electrical current starts to surge through this coil, creating a magnetic field that flips 360,000 times a second. And that changing of the magnetic field warms up the little tiny iron oxide particles inside the organ evenly. Wow, that is very different than a heating mesh. That's really interesting that there's so many different routes they're they're taking here. Yeah, it is. I mean, they, they've also done work with a laser. So this is a long time coming, it feels like. I mean, we've been talking about freezing embryos. That's been kind of nailed down. But like organ freezing, it's just, I mean, it's just been on the horizon for so long. What do you think has kind of pushed the field to this point? I'm not sure I have a definitive answer, but I think there's a few things that have played a role in it. So there are people who have been working on this question, a small number, not a big number, who have been working on this question for decades. They've obviously been making advances, but also there was basically a a surge of interest among a variety of people. There were a series of meetings that were held, including one sort of at the White House in 2015, where you had this convergence of scientists advocates and entrepreneurs who were coming together and saying, look, there could be enormous societal benefits from making advances in this field. Can we push forward on this in a bigger way? And the National Science Foundation came forward with a $26 million five-year grant. 
And then there's been a big infusion of interest from private industry as they've grown more and more invested in working with biological materials and hence having to figure out how to preserve them. I was talking to this marine biologist who's really been dedicating her life now to trying to figure out how to preserve coral in coral banks at a time when coral is vanishing from the natural world. And she was saying that for her, it's the convergence of biologists and engineers working together that has really sort of turbocharged this, that they were previously working sort of on their own little things, and now they're coming together. All right. Before we wrap up, I just want, you mentioned sci-fi in your story, so I think it's only fair that we we touch on that note. And of course, people in sci-fi tend to be frozen whole, right? Like a whole person. Is that something that that people are working on right now? I believe that there are companies that sell this. But when I talk to the folks who are working in this field, you know, the sort of top level researchers, their basic response to doing it right now is that they roll their eyes and say, yeah, that's not a thing. Don't freeze your head. Don't freeze (laughs) your body. Just give it up. You know, if you want to freeze your head or freeze your body, go for it. But um, (laughs) they are highly skeptical of the fact that anything is going to happen with, with you in terms of life being revived in some future century. But on the other hand, I mean, they're, when they talk about the potential distant future implications of the work that they're doing, it does start to get sci-fi. You know, I was talking to one scientist who's starting to figure out how to put little tiny zebrafish larvae into suspended animation for a couple of days and then warm them back up and pop, they start growing again, right? And so, you know, she was saying that in the long distant future, the lessons that are coming from that might be applied to something like long-term space flight, right? Where you basically put people into hibernation and bring them back out. Love it. Do not count on getting your head frozen and then <laughs> and then defrosted into anything that's usable. But on the other hand, I mean, these kinds of sci-fi things are, there is, science is working toward those kind of things. All right. Thank you so much, Warren. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure talking about it. Warren Cornwall is a contributing correspondent based in Washington State. You can read the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned. Up next, we have Theophile Gervais. We're going to talk about programming robots to explore and navigate new places. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Gnomus and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Gnomus and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash Gnomus, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This week in Science Robotics, Theophile Gervais looked at different approaches for getting robots to navigate in the real world. How would a robot go about finding a couch in a never-before-seen house? It turns out the approaches that have worked in simulations don't always hold up in a real-life situation. Hi, Theophile. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Happy to be here. Yeah, great to have you. You know, the tasks we're going to talk about today require semantic navigation. You know, what is this and how do we people do it before we get into how robots might do it? Uh, yes, for sure. So so it's very easy for humans to do. 
For example, when looking for a glass of water at a friend's house, you're visiting for the first time, you can easily find the kitchen without going to bedrooms or storage closets. And it turns out that this spatial common sense, you might call it, is necessary to efficiently explore the house to find the object you're looking for. But it's actually really hard to teach to robots. Right. If they don't have a map and you can't give them the coordinates of the glass, then they have to kind of figure out where the room is, where the glasses are, how to get there efficiently, all those kinds of things. Exactly. The task is pretty challenging. Like the robot not only requires some kind of spatial understanding of distinguishing what's free space from what's an obstacle, but also some kind of semantic scene understanding of being able to detect the objects that might be relevant to the one you're looking for. But it also requires learning a spatial common sense and remembering which part of the home you explored or not. Mm -hmm. So they have to recognize objects. They have to remember where they've been. They have to, it's a lot. They have to find their way there. My favorite part of this study is that you rented Airbnbs and brought robots to them. And you brought the robots to test them out in these new spaces. What kinds of tasks were you asking them to do? At a high level, we took the robot in our car to a house it had never seen before and let it explore the house to find an object of interest. And more completely, the robot starts in a completely unseen home and is asked to find, say, a toilet. In our experiments, we consider six different common objects, beds, sofas, chairs, plants, toilets, and TVs. And the robot has only access to a first-person RGB and depth camera, typical sensor for robots, and some kind of post sensor, a LiDAR, and it must decide how to move around. Okay. One of the things you also varied was the kind of semantic navigation that the robot engaged in. There's kind of a there's kind of a spectrum of ways they can approach this problem. So can you talk a little bit about the different types of uh, navigation policies that these robots had? For sure. So we evaluate three broad classes of approaches. At one end of the spectrum, we have a classical approach that builds a geometric map of the home using the depth sensor explores the environment with a heuristic. A commonly used heuristic is frontier exploration, which would explore the closest unexplored region, and then uses a, some kind of analytical planner to reach either the exploration goal or the goal object as soon as you see it. So at the other end of the spectrum, we have end-to-end -end learning that predicts actions directly from raw observations with a big deep neural network that consists of some visual encoders for the image frames, followed by a recurrent layer for memory. So that sounds a lot more like what we think about when we think about machine learning, where you have a data set and you're kind of looking at what's around you and comparing it and trying to figure out what your relatives or, or things that are closely related to that. Exactly. We train a big neural network mapping inputs to the outputs we want with minimal structure. So the third class of approaches falls somewhere in the middle. It aims to combine the ability for long-term memory and planning of the classical map-based approaches with the ability to learn of a spatial common sense of learning-based methods, because classical approaches don't have this. The method that we evaluate builds a semantic map that keeps track of the objects that you detected and predicts an exploration goal with a learned exploration policy as a function of the map and the goal object, and reaches this with a planner. Right. So at one end, you, you have mostly map. At the other end, you have mostly kind of semantic understanding, and this is kind of in the middle. Exactly. The main difference between this approach and the classical approach is that the exploration policy is learned mm -hmm. instead of heuristic, which allows it to be much more efficient than a heuristic. Okay. So one thing we should say is that these approaches to semantic navigation have all been, or sort of visual navigation, have all been tried out in simulation. So you take your, your robot's brain and you say, pretend you're in a space, go find the couch. 
are they all like pretty much equal when you put them in a in a virtual world? In simulation, all approaches perform about 80% success rate, very comparably. And how did they compare once you got them in the Airbnbs? It turns out that in the real world, modular learning, which is the approach that's in between classical and end-to-end learning approaches, transfers really well up to 90% success rate in the real world, while end-to-end learning fails to transfer completely, down 20% success rate. And classical approaches fall somewhere in between at 80% success rate. Were you surprised that they, you know, they differed in the real world, even though they were the same in simulation? Yeah, I think we were surprised because everybody expected end-to-end learning to win in the end because it benefits the most from additional data with minimal inductive biases. Why do you think end-to-end learning, which is the one we think of where it's kind of constantly updating, why do you think it didn't do as well as expected in this situation? So we wanted to understand why modular learning transfers so well while end-to-end learning doesn't. And to answer this question, we reconstructed one real-world home in simulation and conducted experiments with identical episodes in simulation and reality. And the main difference is that the end-to-end policy directly takes the RGB and depth frames as input, while the exploration policy of the modular learning approach takes a semantic map. It's an explicit map of all the objects the robot has seen so far as input. So the key issue that prevents the end-to-end approach from transferring well to the real world is that simulation and real-world images look pretty different because a fast photorealistic rendering is still a hard open problem. And so the policy is trained to see simulation images. And when it's deployed to the real world, it expects to see simulation images, but it performs poorly because it's faced with real world images that look very different. So they can't see, if you will, in the real world, the way they see in simulations. Is that a problem that can be fixed with the data set for the end-to-end learning model? So there's two ways people are approaching this problem. One is to try to improve photorealism, which is a hard open problem to make fast enough to train at scale in simulation. And the other approach is to randomize over RGB images, hoping that one of the random samples covers what the real world would actually look like. Very interesting. On the other side, with the modular learning, it's not, quote unquote, seeing the world the way we think about it. It's not ingesting images per se, but more like applying a layer of semantic information to the scene. Is that why it was more successful? The exploration policy of a modular learning approach operates on a semantic map that represents all objects the robot has seen so far. And this map representation has been explicitly designed to abstract away all the environmental factors that are hard to simulate accurately, like photorealistic RGB images. So it ends up looking very similar in simulation and reality. And this is what allows the exploration policy to transfer well. What kind of jobs would this be useful for? When would a robot need semantic navigation to do its work? So the applications I'm most excited about are in assistive robotics. As we all know, our population is aging very rapidly and we don't have enough nurses and occupational therapists to deal with this issue. So it would be super awesome to be able to assist the elderly or disabled in maintaining a clean home, fetching simple objects like getting a Diet Coke, or in the more long term, even with showering or dressing. And to be useful alongside humans, robots need two broad set of skills. One is navigation, which we discussed, moving around on their wheels or legs, and the other is manipulation, interacting with things with their hands. And in this work, we showed that navigation is already reliable enough for real-world deployment in products. To be honest, I'm not sure we can provide enough value with navigation alone to be broadly adopted beyond the Roomba, which is pretty much the only robot people interact with. Yeah. 
I think we need to solve at least a subset of mobile manipulation to make robots really useful. And we and many other labs in academia and industry are working on this right now. I was at the airport in San Francisco last week and I got a coffee from a robot. Wow, this is pretty good. It was an arm, just the arm that we're all used to seeing, you know, in different settings. And it was closed off. It was in a glass box. Like no people were allowed in there. It knew where every single thing was. It knew where the cups were. It knew where the hot water was. You know, it had very specific programming for every beverage you could order from the screens. And it had very pre-described paths. And it knew where everything is. That's the state of robots today. They're often static and isolated from humans. Well, the true potential of robotics is journalist robots in unstructured environments, like mobile robots capable of assisting the elderly. And to enable this vision, we need robots to be able to navigate in messy human environments like our homes or hospitals. So that would be like if you went to Starbucks and there were two baristas and one robot behind the counter, and they could all make you the same thing and they could all move around each other and get everything you needed. And there wouldn't be any like... The robot wasn't just doing a specific set of tasks in one specific spot. Exactly. We might have one robot barista and one human barista collaborating and doing whatever each one does best. Thank you so much, Theophile. Thank you, Sarah. Theophile Gervais is a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University. You can find a link to the science robotics paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for the second in our new six-part series on books exploring the science of sex and gender. This month, host Angela Saini talks with legal scholar and sociologist Dorothy Roberts about the reproductive rights and freedoms of Black American women. Hello, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author, and the host of this special series of books podcasts. Every month, I interview the author of a thought-provoking book on sex and gender. For this, the second episode, I'm joined by Dorothy Roberts, a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, renowned for her powerful work on race, gender, and class inequality. Her books include Fatal Invention, about how scientists inappropriately invoke race in research, sometimes with shocking consequences. But today we'll be talking about one of her earlier works, Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction and the Meaning of Liberty. Originally published in 1997 and updated in 2017, it still resonates today, not least following the decision by the United States Supreme Court last year to take away the constitutional right to abortion. Roberts explains that the policing of reproduction in the US has always been felt keenly by black families in particular. She writes devastatingly that a lurid mythology of black mothers' unfitness, along with a science devoted to black biological inferiority, cast black childbearing as a dangerous activity. Dorothy, it's an honor to have you here. There is so much to unpack in your book, but let's start with slavery. Could you describe for me the treatment of black families in the US during the time that slavery was legal and why you feel it's important to remember this in the context of reproductive rights today? The exploitation of black women's reproductive labor was absolutely essential to the perpetuation of the slavery system because that childbearing was what replenished white enslavers' supply of 
human beings. And so it was in the economic interest of enslavers to ensure that Black women continue to have babies, which were from the moment of conception deemed the chattel property of enslavers. And also they were incentivized or forced to have multiple children. And of course, this was completely outside of the autonomy and and decision-making of Black women themselves. And I think equally important was the way in which enslavers dominated child rearing and families because the white enslaver was the head of the plantation family and he had legal control over everybody who lived on the plantation or the farm, his wife, his own children, but even more so the children of the Black people whom he enslaved. This meant that Black parents had no legal authority whatsoever over their children. The white enslavers could separate families at will for any reason, to pay off a debt as part of their inheritance, to punish enslaved parents. And if it became economically advantageous, they would do it for, it it didn't matter the reason. And so family separation was also a key part of slavery and one of the most horrific aspects of slavery, the tearing apart of family bonds. And so all of this, every aspect of Black people's reproductive lives were controlled by white enslavers for the benefit of their profit-making, the benefit of racial capitalism. And it's important to understand that is understanding the horrors of slavery, understanding the full scope of what it meant to enslave human beings, to treat them as chattel property. I think it's also important to understand it so we can fully grasp the horrors of reproductive control today, whether it's forcing people to have children, forcing pregnant people to bear a child, or whether it's sterilizing people or otherwise denying them the ability to have children or punishing them for having children. There's such brutal, vivid portraits that you paint in your work. And as you say, under slavery, because of this devastating economic imperative, Black women were pushed to have more babies. But as you explain, after slavery ends, what you then see is these same women pressured to have fewer children because these children are now seen as a burden rather than a source of potential profit. Can you describe that turning point? Sure. So once Black women's childbearing no longer produced children who were innately enslavable, it was no longer necessarily profitable to white people and to racial capitalism to have more and more Black children born in the United States. I want to make it clear, though, that that doesn't mean that they couldn't be profitable, they couldn't be forced to work, because immediately after the Civil War, former white enslavers, as part of the effort to effectively re-enslave Black people, turned to the courts to regain the economic advantage 
to again exploit black children's labor through the child apprentice system. And tens of thousands of black children were returned through court order on grounds that their parents neglected them, uh, returned to their former enslavers. So it's still the case that black children's labor can be exploited and is exploited, but it no longer had the same kind of direct economic value to white people in power that it did during the slavery era. And it became more beneficial to upholding racial capitalism to make Black children disposable and to paint Black women as reckless childbearers and their childbearing as a social problem. In Killing the Black Body, I dispute the idea that that is just about a kind of racial genocide, that it's just about reducing the numbers of Black children. I actually think it works more as a justification for punishment and for blaming Black women for causing social problems. This idea that Black women's wombs are dangerous and that Black women produce children who are a problem for their own communities, but also a problem for America in general. And of course, this also overlaps with other policies and movements that existed at the time. Some listeners may not be aware that the birth control movement, which we you know, very appropriately associate so profoundly with women's rights, also for a while overlapped with the deeply pseudoscientific eugenics movement in the early 20th century, which was all about improving the so-called fitness of the population through selective breeding. How did that more broadly impact minority and poorer women? The eugenics movement, which was really more than a movement, it was dominant science in the United States for a good part of the 20th century. It was both an ideology that the population could be improved through managed reproduction that incentivize births by people who were deemed to be socially valuable and inherited these supposedly socially valuable traits and by reducing or preventing the childbearing by people who are deemed to be socially harmful because they supposedly inherited these negative social traits. So that ideology supported policies like compelled sterilization policies. And so it then becomes a scientific excuse for policies that oppress impoverished people and that oppress the devalued racialized groups in America. Both groups that we now consider to be white, which at the time were considered either not white at all or not white enough, you know, like Poles and Irish people and Italians, you know, and Jews. So they were subject to eugenicist immigration policies, for example, and other kinds of policies that devalued them and and disadvantaged them. And at one point, Black people as well began to be subject to these eugenicist policies. And there were birth control programs that were targeted at Black people in the South, 
to reduce their populations. I think not many people will be aware of the scale of sterilization that went on. Could you explain it, not just among Black women, but Indigenous women? So many different groups were targeted. Yeah, so under eugenicist ideology and policies, there were tens of thousands of people who were sterilized under compulsory sterilization laws. And initially, these were primarily white people who were impoverished people or people with disabilities who fell under these laws that allowed for states to forcibly sterilize them on grounds that it was good for them. Now, these laws and other forms of state-imposed sterilization spread to Latina women, to Indigenous women and Black women, and also men through various government policies, not necessarily explicitly eugenicist policies or eugenics boards, although in North Carolina, the eugenics board continued from the 1930s into the 1970s. And it's a reflection of this shift from targeting mostly impoverished white people and white people with disabilities to targeting mostly people of color. What was more common in the 60s and 70s was the sterilization of Black women, women in Puerto Rico, Mexican origin women in California, Indigenous women under federal programs that coerced or tricked women into being sterilized. So, for example, doctors who were paid by federally funded welfare programs would require that women agree, this is not voluntary consent, but sign forms supposedly agreeing to sterilization in order to get healthcare benefits, in order to get welfare benefits, in order to have care during labor and delivery, in order to get other forms of health care. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer, for example, was sterilized when she went to get a, a procedure and was given a hysterectomy instead. And this was so common, it became known as the Mississippi appendectomy because people would go in for one kind of procedure and leave, sometimes without their knowledge, with a hysterectomy that sterilized them. So through these various forms of coercion, trickery, or just compulsion, we don't even know the numbers, probably hundreds of thousands of women, disproportionately women of color, were sterilized during the course of the 20th century. Once this logic, this rationale of sterilization had entered the mainstream medical establishment, once it had become policy, what then drives American physicians to sterilize women is not just that they're affected by you know, their judgments about their race or their class by patient, but also by money and expediency. So for example, needing bodies to medically train on. Yes, that's right. This was not relegated just to the South. I already mentioned California, but I remember writing Killing the Black Body, a report out of Boston about residents being trained to conduct sterilization procedures 
on impoverished Black women in the city. This is also, I think, highlights the connection back to the slavery era and the idea that Black women could be experimented on. You know, think about the experiments of J. Marion Sims, the so-called father of gynecology, who conducted his experiments to perfect gynecological treatments on enslaved women without anesthesia and, of course, without their consent. The idea that human beings could be forced to be subjected to all manner of suffering for the sake of medicine and science is an idea that comes out of slavery. And I think we should think of it in connection with the idea that people can be forced to bear children for the state or could be punished for having children, you know, for the sake of the broader public. Of course, a lot has happened politically since your book was first originally published. In what ways are Black and minority American women better off now than they were in the late 1990s? Or are things worse? Well, many of the conditions and ideas have actually gotten worse. Maternal mortality rates, which are experienced at far higher rates by Black women, have been rising in the United States. We now have a significant number of states that have banned or so severely restricted abortion that it's effectively banned. I think what has changed most dramatically, though, and what is better is the rise of the reproductive justice movement. So in the 1990s, actually around the time I was writing Killing the Black Body, Black women developed a framework of reproductive justice to challenge the view that reproductive freedom meant that we have choices and instead focused on the way in which our social order and political conditions affect our ability to have true control over our our bodies and our reproductive lives. Both the activism and the framework and principles of reproductive justice are essential to the radical change that we need and also give me hope that we can fight back and resist, but also reimagine a world that no longer relies on punishment and violence to meet human needs, but instead approaches our needs and problems with care and love and respect for our human equality. Well, I'm so glad we could end on a note of hopefulness. <laughs> Professor Dorothy Roberts, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for including me. And thank you for listening. That's it for this month. I'm Angela Saini, and next time I'll be interviewing Amanda Locke-Soir about her book, Envisioning African Intersex. Hope you can join me then. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. Special thanks to Angela Saini for all of her work on the book segments. 
On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.